Well, it is a great honor to address you tonight, and I just want to leave you uh, for our church family, especially with a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, we have services as usual this weekend, Sunday at 11 and 6, and that will be online only, of course, at this time. And we're hoping that you'll be able to join us and uh, benefit from the Word of God and from getting together with God's people, even through uh, a method that's uh, albeit a little bit strange. Uh, I do want to thank all of you. I've received many notes, even today, from uh, saints, from pastors, and from churches. Uh, you're following along with us. Some of you are uh, using uh, some of the messages that we've preached in the last uh, few services. In particular, uh, the message House to House from Sunday morning. Many churches are uh, playing that for their congregations or their small groups this week, even tonight. And I pray that that's a blessing, and I pray that that uh, inspires your church the way uh, it impacted us here and impacted me personally. I would like to mention that we're so grateful that you're joining with us online, but I do want to make sure to remind you that CCC is grateful to be part of your spiritual diet but we're not your pastor and we're not your local church. So please be faithful in remembering your pastor, your faithful man of God who labors for you every week. And remember your church. Uh, make sure you're faithful in your tithes and your offerings and your missions giving. Make sure you're faithful in praying for that man and woman of God that lead you. That's so very important at a time like this. These are unprecedented times and, and pastors, uh, they're struggling like everybody else to give good advice and counsel and, and lead the church in a way that would please God and uh, also help our society. We believe the church should be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And so uh, please remember your local church. If you're part of our local family, uh, we do want you to remember that uh, it is possible to give in all the usual ways. We have six ways to give here at CCC. Two of them involve dropping by the building. Our office staff is here. We have a small contingent of staff that's still maintaining the office Tuesday through Friday, 9 to 4. And so you can drop by if you wanted to give in person, um, you know, if you wanted to use one of the kiosks here in the building. And then all of the online ways or giving by mail, of course, still works. Also, I would remind you that if you want to get a hold of us, the best time to call is to call during regular office hours. That is the quickest way for you to get in touch with one of the pastors instead of leaving a, a message uh, maybe at a different time because we're trying to maintain social distancing and so we're not in the office all of the time. But our staff will be uh, glad and honored to get your message to us. So please keep that in mind. And tonight we begin part two of our series, Scattered. And we draw our title from this series from the opening words of Peter to a group of strangers who are scattered throughout all of Asia Minor. They don't have the opportunity for the close fellowship that we normally and typically enjoy today. In fact, they're basically tied together only by letters like this one, 1 Peter, that make their way from group to group, uh, bringing a word of encouragement as a letter is passed around, maybe brought by a messenger and read to a small congregation. And we draw our title for the series from Peter's opening words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, scattered. It's important to note that these scattered strangers are going through a time of suffering and persecution. That is the one common bond that they all share, suffering. At least 15 times in this letter, Peter will make reference to various kinds of suffering. And as we all know all too well, 
no matter where suffering comes from or why it arrives in our lives, it's always difficult to negotiate suffering. It's so easy to feel isolated or scattered during those times. So there's certainly a message in this little epistle for each one of us. In the opening section of the letter, we talked about it last Wednesday, Peter emphasized walking in hope in the midst of our trials. And now he shifts his emphasis slightly to discuss walking in holiness. That might seem strange until we remember what the Apostle John wrote in one of his letters. He said, every man that hath this hope in him, he purifieth himself even as he is pure. So what John said and what Peter's alluding to here is that if you do have true hope in Christ, you'll have true holiness as well. To be holy means that a Christian is different, distinct, set apart, withdrawn from the things of the world. That kind of lifestyle appears strange to the lost. It appears very odd to our culture, but it is precious and powerful to believers. It's not easy to live in a sinful world and maintain a holy walk, but it is always worth it. And so we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 1 tonight. Peter said, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Peter instructs us to be self-disciplined, to gird up the loins of our mind, to be prepared for spiritual battle, to be sober, in other words, to be serious about our relationship with God. Because only those who finish this race will receive the reward of God's grace. He tells us to be obedient children. Now that's a concept that every parent understands, but sometimes our culture forgets. He says, be obedient children. Put the commandments of God ahead of the lusts of your flesh. You see, he mentions it here. We used to do whatever felt good to us at the time. We, we fashioned ourselves according to the former lusts in our ignorance. We never realized that each of the choices we were making in sin were fashioning us, molding us in sin and lust. It's like we were building our own prisons bar by bar and brick by brick. But that was before, Peter said. That was in our old lives when we were ignorant of God's word. But now we know better, so we should live better. And here is the greatest motivation for living a holy life. God called us into his kingdom. There is no better, greater, more wonderful motivation than that. What an unimaginable privilege it is to be called into the kingdom of God. And it is God's command, not the preacher, not the church. It is God's command to be ye holy, for I am holy. And so we live the way we live in deep appreciation for God's salvation and in obedience, willing, cheerful, loving obedience to his request. Unholy people cannot have fellowship with a holy God. 
And by the way, being holy isn't a once a week appearance at a church service. Peter says we are to be holy, quote, in all manner of conversation. I've said this many times when teaching about the beautiful subject of holiness. You see, today, the word conversation simply means talk. Uh, conversation, talking, talking, talking. But 400 years ago, when the King James Version was translated, uh, it meant all the ways in which we converse with the world around us, the ways we interact. That was conversation 400 years ago. The Word of God didn't change, not one bit, but the English language changed over the last 400 years. So Peter is literally saying, if we were to take his words and express it in a modern form of English, we would say, we need to be different, distinct, set apart, withdrawn from the world, in all manner of conversation, or in all aspects of our lifestyle. Holiness should affect every part of your life for God. To be sanctified means to be set apart for God's exclusive use and pleasure, just like the furniture in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, just like the garments that the priests used to clothe themselves, just like the utensils that were used for the feasts and the festivals. They were set apart for God's exclusive use and pleasure. They weren't used for everything else or anyone else. So that means that everything we do should reflect the holiness of God. To a mature believer, there is no such thing as secular over here and sacred over here. All of life is holy for believers as we live to glorify God. The Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10 that even ordinary activities like eating and drinking can be done to the glory of God. So if something like eating and drinking can be done to the glory of God, we obviously know that if anything cannot be done to the glory of God, we can be sure it must be out of the will of God. If you do something and you would not want God to be kind of looking over your shoulder while you're doing that, two things. Number one, he is. And number two, you want to know that that's out of the will of God for you. Secular and sacred do not divide for the child of God. It is one whole, holy life for God. The next verse is a little different. It's kind of a King James English tongue twister. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. What's Peter saying? He's saying, well, if we call God our Father, then our lives should reflect his nature, which is holy. God loves each one of us dearly. Don't you ever forget it. But just like your parents or just like you are with your children, he's not going to make exceptions to his word and he will not compromise with sin. It was sin that warped God's creation in the first place, doing such eternal harm. And it was sin that took our Lord Jesus to the cross. God hates sin. And he withdraws from us whenever we allow sin to enter our hearts. Now we love verses like this next one. This is Acts 10, 34. This is where God's salvation was first opened to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. This is what Peter said. This is the same author, by the way. Peter opened his mouth and said, he announces this, of a truth, I perceive that God 
is no respecter of persons. What a statement. Peter just said, God's salvation is going to be open to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Why? Because God's grace is no respecter of persons. He'll save a Jewish person. He'll save a Gentile person. He'll save an educated person or an uneducated person. He'll save someone who's a great neighbor and a good citizen, or he'll save someone that's living on the street. It's not uh, any problem for God to save those who are low or those who think they are high. God is no respecter of persons. His grace doesn't respect where you came from. His grace will reach you and change you. We love that verse that tells us God's grace is no respecter of persons. But now come back to the verse Peter was just writing. We also need to remember that God's law is no respecter of persons. Peter reminds us that God will judge each of us according to our works at the judgment seat of Christ. So we should constantly keep that eternal appointment in mind during our journey, or what he calls our sojourning through this sinful world. He said, we live in reverent fear of God, much like you and I would honor and respect our earthly parents for all they've done for us. We live in reverent uh, respect, reverent awe of them. That's what Peter is saying here. It's one thing to say, God's grace is no respecter of persons. But we also need to realize that God's law, his commands are no respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't grant exceptions. We all need to take living for God authentically very, very seriously. Verse 18, this is such a beautiful passage. Peter said, for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. That's not how you were saved. But here's how you were saved, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The world around us, brothers and sisters, will never understand the holy lifestyle of an apostolic Christian until they too have experienced God's salvation. Peter reminds us, of the precious and powerful salvation experience that we have in this profound paragraph that can't help but make gratitude just arise in our hearts. You see, to us, redemption today is just a theological word, a Bible word, if you will, but not so to Peter's audience. They lived in the time of the Roman Empire. There were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. And the only way a slave could become free in Peter's day is if someone paid the price. That was it. There was no other way. And that is what they called redemption. So Peter reaches into his culture and he borrows a word with such power and he applies it to salvation. And he tells us, you know what? The only way somebody can become free in the Roman Empire is if somebody pays the price. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you on the cross. You were not redeemed with money because no amount of money could have paid the price to buy your deliverance. Neither were we redeemed by empty religious tradition. 
which can never change a heart. No matter how many times you go to religious services, that's not going to change you. There's only one thing, and Peter weighs in heavily here. It cost heaven everything to redeem us. It cost the precious blood of Christ, our sacrificial lamb. Jesus was our substitute for sin. And that doctrine we call substitutionary sacrifice. It didn't start here with Peter. It didn't start in the New Testament with Calvary. It begins early in the word of God. In Genesis chapter 3, God sheds the blood of animals so he could clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. That's not only a beautiful picture of the covering of the blood, it's also an important illustration of God's desire for his people to be covered in modesty. A little later in Genesis 22, a ram took the place of Isaac, and then the Passover lamb was slain for every Jewish household in Exodus 12 on the eve of the Passover. Isaiah, the great prophet, he presented the Messiah as an innocent lamb in Isaiah 53. And then John the Baptist summarized the entire Old Testament with one gesture when he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You go all the way to the other end of your Bible and the book of Revelation refers to Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it portrays multitudes, multitudes of millions and millions crying out, Worthy is the lamb that was slain. You know, the only difference between us and the rest of the world as far as worship is concerned is that we have chosen to bow our knees and confess with our mouths right now that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someday, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but we've chosen to do it now. Peter he just weighs in in such a beautiful way and tells us how deep this salvation is, how wonderful it is, and how profound it is. It didn't happen recently. It happened prophetically from the opening pages of the Word of God. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. It was a prophetic appointment. Peter continues in verse 21, and he says this, Who by him you do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and your hope might be in God, seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Now people sometimes, in an attempt to disprove the word of God, they get into this chicken and egg argument about salvation. And it goes something like this. Well, does God save us or do we have faith in God and our faith saves us? Which is it? Does God do it without us or do we do it kind of without God? Is it God saving us or is it our faith saving us? And that's a silly proposition because our faith and our hope come from God in the first place. But as we know, James tells us that faith without works is dead. And we're told by Paul in Romans that God gives to every man the measure of faith. So you can't 
uh, serve God, you can't believe God, you can't be saved without doing something with the faith that you have. But in case you get a big head and say, well, I saved myself, Paul says, no, God gave to every man the measure of faith. He just expects us to use that faith in obedience to his word. Peter tells these scattered strangers that two factors have given them this holy lifestyle that they now live. He said, you've purified your souls. The first factor, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, there is no real holiness. That's the first factor. But the second factor is equally important. Peter said, it's obeying the truth. It's impossible to have the spirit of truth, the Holy Ghost, and not love the truth of God's word. The Holy Spirit will never allow us to ignore God's commandments because it's his role to guide us into all truth. So Peter says there's two factors. First, the Holy Spirit, and then obeying the truth. And when you put those two things together, they work in your life to give you this holy relationship with God. Now, even though these believers that Peter's writing to are scattered far afield and all over Asia Minor, he says one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit's work, even when we're scattered, even when we can't get together like we prefer and like we're used to, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit's work is unfeigned love of the brethren. So even when these people they don't have the opportunity to see each other face to face for long periods of time. There is a genuine, pure, fervent love for each other that resides in their hearts. Peter declares it is impossible to love the truth and not love the brethren. And he makes this comparison. He said, our first birth was a birth of the flesh and the flesh is corruptible. Whatever is born of the flesh is destined to die and to decay. And that explains why mankind, despite all of our universities and our education, our skill and our technology, mankind cannot hold civilization together. We make huge strides and we achieve great things and then it all seems to crumble and there's a war, there's a conflict. Like the beautiful flowers of spring, man's works look successful for a time, but then they start to die and decay. So we cannot build unity in God's church on the basis of man's ideas. We only build it on the word of God. And it is a true, pure unity. He said that it is unfeigned love of the brethren. In verse 24, he says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It's sad. We've seen so much of it in the last couple of weeks. It's sad to see people give their time, their money, their energy, their effort to frail fragile things on this earth, businesses and careers, and, and they've totally ignored their spiritual life. And now, as we've learned so suddenly and in such a startling way over the last couple of weeks, anything born of the flesh is like grass. It can be taken from us 
at any time. Who would have thought that we would be in such a situation right now? And yet, here we are. Anything born of the flesh is like grass. It can die at a moment's notice for a myriad of reasons. The entire world is struggling right now to adjust their expectations, to limit their activities, and to cope with a new harsh reality. It is disconcerting to be sure. And real panic has settled upon so many. But I speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters and say, not so with the church. We choose to be careful, but not fearful. We choose to still believe that our God has us in the palm of his hand and his eye is upon us and he is looking out for his people. We trust God even when circumstances are difficult. Our relationship with God is not born of the flesh. It is born by the word of God, which endures forever. It is this powerful, eternal word that brought us the gospel. And it is the same word that is going to sustain us during this period of time. Now, we are scattered right now. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Preachers everywhere are preaching to empty buildings and saints everywhere are limited to watching online. We've canceled all in-person services. But let me tell you something. Faith has not been canceled. Prayer has not been canceled. Not one of God's promises have been canceled. But in context of what Peter taught us tonight, I want to tell you this. Our unfeigned love for each other has not been canceled either. I speak right now to our local church. I speak to the saints who call um, CCC their home. And I would say this. We have some precious elders, seniors, and shut-ins. What you may not know, especially if you're young because you're busy, your life is so full. You've got children and jobs and obligations. And what you may not even realize is we've got precious little senior saints who take our church directory that we made available to you. And it has the names of all of our church people. And you may not even realize this, but we've got precious seniors that pray through that directory every week, asking God's blessing and protection on people like you and people like me. I think it would be so wonderful at a time like this if we would reverse that because they are the people, number one, they're the most vulnerable to this pandemic, but secondly, they're the least likely to have uh, consistent or even uh, online access at all. Some of them are really going through it right now because they can't come to their beloved church and they can't participate in services and they feel so alone. But Peter said, the Holy Ghost in us, one of the evidences of being true believers is to have an unfeigned love of the brethren. I want to encourage you as your pastor, and I will leave this with you tonight. I don't have a long, complicated Bible study. I just wanted to come your way and give you what God gave me. I think it would be so appropriate and so wonderful if we could reverse that care and concern, that prayer and that love. 
And we could begin to function as the family of God in a way that we maybe have not for a while. And you could maybe take it on your heart to look through that very same directory where they're praying over your family and they're calling your name before the Lord. And maybe you could not only do that, but maybe, just maybe, you could pick up the phone and you could call a senior saint and tell them that you miss getting together with them at the house of the Lord. And you're so privileged to belong to a church with precious elders that have lived for Jesus all of these years. And you're thinking about them and you're calling their name. It would be wonderful if you could have a word of prayer with them. You don't have to if that's out of your comfort zone. But just to touch base because there's something beautiful and powerful about this unfeigned love of the brethren. Pick up the phone this week. Call one of your brothers, one of your sisters in the Lord. This church has weathered much greater storms than this because we are built on the word of God. And in the middle of a viral pandemic, we know that God is still in control. His word still will not return void. He still answers prayer. And he's still expecting us to be that kind of a church that has unfeigned love one for each other. I'd like to pray with you before I leave you tonight. And I thank you for tuning in to Bible study we're looking forward to Sunday. Going to have two great services online on Sunday. Let's pray together tonight and ask God to guide us and be with us and speak to us and use us for the rest of this week. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful one more time to be able to come to you in prayer over our church family. I'm thankful, God, for young couples and I'm thankful for young parents. I'm thankful for single parents and seniors and I'm thankful for all of the folks that make up the fabric of CCC. God, we do love each other, but in our busyness, it's so easy to forget each other. We do love each other, but we get so preoccupied with so many things, and it's easy to forget. I thank you, God, for our visitation team that's been calling some of our vulnerable members. But God, it's not just their job. We all are to have this unfeigned love of the brethren. God, I thank you for our staff that's being diligent at this time to look after the interests of the church. I'm grateful for every one of them. But God, it's not just their job. We're all supposed to have this unfeigned love of the brethren. And so I pray right now, Jesus, a, a very simple prayer. But oh my goodness, how meaningful it will be. Right now, Jesus, lay on the hearts of your people that are sensitive to your spirit and sensitive to your word. Lay on their heart some people that they can call tonight, tomorrow. They can encourage them. They can maybe pray with them. They can just express your love and their love to those people. God, at this time, we want to be a kind of church that expresses the unfeigned love of the brethren. I pray, Jesus, that you would use this time to bind us together, even though that doesn't make sense, to draw us in unity, even though it seems that's impossible. But I pray you would do it because you are able to do much more than we could ask or even think. God, I pray your blessing over our church family tonight. We have people in the hospital. We have people going in for procedures. We have people that are sick at home. We have people that are looking this way for prayer. 
And Jesus, I pray that, that you would lay them on someone's heart tonight. And God, use us all for your glory and for your kingdom. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory because we ask it in the name of Jesus.